Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And we're back. By we, she means Gastropod, our new podcast. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I'm Nicola Twilley. Every month, we bring you a new in-depth look at the science and history of food. In a couple weeks, you'll hear from us about the search for... Great flavor. And I'm not talking about ice cream, of course. I'm talking about true, truly great flavor, the depth of flavor that chefs are always pursuing. I mean, hell, what are, what are we without that? You know, what are we? Not a lot. That was Dan Barber. He's not only a chef at the world-famous Blue Hill Restaurant, he's also the author of a new book called The Third Plate. We'll be talking to him about the links between culinary and ecological history, as well as some of the science of soil health and vegetable flavor. And in between these longer episodes we air each month, like our interview with Dan Barber, we're serving up a bite-sized episode just to tide you over. This is one of those. So today, instead of a long, like a commute-length listen, consider us your companions for a walk around the block. We'll be talking about things we've read, maybe what we've been doing. It's basically a chance for us to share the one or two things that we think are most interesting right now. First up, a story that was published in Wired this summer called How We Can Tame Overlooked Wild Plants to Feed the World. It's by Hilary Rosner, who does happen to be a friend of mine. Right, but it was my idea to talk about it before I even knew about that connection. It's just a completely fascinating story about something that seems like it should be ancient history. I mean, humans started to domesticate plants for food more than 10,000 years ago. And I thought it was a done deal. We have all of our great crops like wheat and potatoes and chickpeas and strawberries and so on. And most plant breeders just work on making them better. But it turns out that Hillary found this small group of scientists who are actively trying to domesticate new species. I had never heard of anything like this. I called up Hillary and asked her where she got the idea for the story. She heard this scientist called Stephen Cannon speak about trying to domesticate a new crop, and it got her thinking. I never really thought about, well, like, why? Why Why did we domesticate some plants and not others? And why did we stop? And did we stop? And so I just started kind of asking around about that. And it turned out that really there haven't been that many things that have been domesticated in the last couple thousand years. There's a great line in the piece. Hillary writes that we haven't domesticated anything new since about a millennium before Jesus ate matzah. What have we been doing? (laughs) 
I know that we've been certainly doing plenty much in every other realm except for domestication. And there are apparently tens of thousands of species of wild plants that are edible that could potentially be domesticated. And, you know, these also may help solve some environmental problems we have in farming today. And they may be more resilient when it comes to threats from climate change. What was so amazing is the numbers she quotes. There's something like 50,000 edible plant species, and we use just 150 of them for food. And then just three of them provide two-thirds of all the world's calories. The big three, corn, wheat, and rice. I know, but three out of 50,000. The part that really got me, though, was this vision that she hints at about how the foods and flavors of North America could have been completely different. There's something about that idea of just the wasted possibility. She has this line about how European settlers arrived here to this vast edible landscape and mostly ignored it. Exactly. And it made sense to ignore it, you know? I mean, they weren't familiar with any of the foods here. They brought seeds with them for plants that were already domesticated and that worked and that they knew how to grow and how to eat. And domesticating new crops is hard work. So they planted their wheat and they ignored the native edible grasses. I mean... I'm sure I would have done the same thing, but wow. And we have tools now that they didn't have. It took early farmers thousands of years to selectively breed plants. Now scientists can do that work in a fraction of the time. Thanks to DNA sequencing technology. Yeah, it's traditional selective breeding, but with a high-tech genetic assist. And it still isn't simple, even though I made it sound that way with that short sentence. The scientists Hillary spoke to are working on domesticating some of those ignored North American edibles. But the results are not quite yet ready for our supermarkets. But oh my God, do they sound tasty. They do. That potato bean, Hillary describes it as tasting like a lentil crossed with a Yukon gold. You can have it mashed or in a soup with leeks. Basically, it's like a potato, but with three times the protein and this lovely nutty flavor. I am dying to try one. Me too. Hillary told me that getting to eat these brand new foods that are somehow ancient, but also cutting-edge products of science at the same time, she said that was the most fun part. And I believe her. (laughs) I, I wanted to try it all as I was reading it. She certainly makes it sound delicious. So, you know, at the Land Institute in Kansas, they're also trying to kind of re-domesticate wheat. It's not originally from here, but they're trying to domesticate an ancient wheat relative that grows every year, just like our natural grasslands here in the U.S. did. And it has deeper root systems. This would make the plants much hardier. It would allow them to access deeper water and more soil nutrients. And they gave her a sample of flour from this new grain. It was neat to, like, have this little bag of flour that so few people on the planet have ever tasted and to bring it home and like bake chocolate chip cookies with it. It just, it really did feel like kind of subversive in some way. And, and they were, they were ridiculously good. Like they were way better than any chocolate chip cookies I've ever made before. Um, so that was kind of fun. And then I got to give them out to various friends and be like, you're eating this, you're eating these chocolate chip cookies with this brand new flour that nobody has tasted before. If you think about it, These actually might be the most American cookies ever, right? Chocolate chip cookies are, they were invented in America, they symbolize everything American, and these, Hillary's ones, they're made with the first grain ever to be domesticated in North America. It might be the platonic ideal of a chocolate chip cookie. And, you know, this idea of a new, truly American set of crops fits in really interestingly with our conversation with Dan Barber, the one that's coming up in two weeks. So hold that thought. And if you haven't already read Hillary's story, we have links at gastropod.com. 
Meanwhile, the other interesting and completely overlooked American foodscape we wanted to talk about is wild, not domesticated. From plants to fish, we both read American Catch. It's Paul Greenberg's new book about American seafood. It tells the story of three iconic American seafoods, the eastern oyster, the Gulf shrimp, and the Alaskan sockeye salmon. And honestly, it's mostly stories about how we've ignored and damaged and not appreciated these wonderful edible resources. It is not, despite the sound of that, a total downer, though. It's, it's these powerful sets of stories, I thought at least, that will get readers to care about and maybe even eat the fish and shellfish in American waters. Right, because at the moment that is just not the case. I was genuinely surprised to read that the United States has more than double as many acres of ocean as it does land, and our plates don't reflect that at all. We eat so many more land foods than seafoods. And the seafoods we do eat, they're mostly imported. We export a lot of our good stuff. But, and this was the optimistic part of the story for me, he points out that Alaska alone produces a half billion pounds more seafood than Americans consume altogether each year. True. I'm so used to reading about all the fish you shouldn't eat because they're endangered or they're not sustainably fished or whatever. I can't even keep track of what's on which list. So to think that American seafood is actually abundant, that was quite exciting. Yeah, you know, I've spent a lot of time reporting on and reading about the ways we've decimated populations of fish. Historically, America had wild fish like cod and oysters in populations we can't even imagine today. So his recommendations to eat more Alaskan wild salmon, for example, that we have enough for the American market and more, that's great. We could eat sustainably from American waters and eat even more seafood than we do now. Could and should. Because the final story in the book is about the Bristol Bay salmon fishery in Alaska, and it's currently being threatened by a company that wants to open a large pit mine there. Paul Greenberg makes the point that it is completely stupid to do irreparable damage to a long-term, sustainably managed source of some of the healthiest food on Earth just to get hold of a little more gold. But also, and this is the sad part, that it's almost impossible to get Americans to care about it Because we just don't eat enough of it. Right. You know, he quotes this amazing statistic that almost 80% of our wild salmon is exported and two-thirds of the salmon we eat is farmed. There's this one line that stands out to me. Quite simply, Americans are risking their wild salmon because Americans do not eat enough of their wild salmon. That definitely felt like a call to action. And he does say that, you know, some Americans aren't used to the more salmon-y flavor of wild salmon, which I get because I hated that fishy flavor as a kid. But I've learned to love it. I do love it. It really is delicious. And it's so much better for you, too. It is more expensive, though, than the farmed kind. But, you know, reading about Bristol Bay and the mine threat, it it did make me want to go out and support the fishery to be part of this growing market for wild salmon here in the U.S. Oh, me too. I got all fired up and I signed a letter to the EPA at SaveBristolBay.org. So I'm voting with my fork and my keyboard. So that is another recommendation for your reading list, Paul Greenberg's American Catch. Links at gastropod.com, as always. And that's it for this mini-bite edition of Gastropod. Check back in two weeks to listen to our interview with Chef Dan Barber. Because you know you're curious about the history and ecology of the world-famous mouth-watering jamón ibérico, ham, from Spain. But before we go, we wanted to say how thrilled we were by the responses that we got from you, our listeners, to our very first episode on all things cutlery. Oh, so many lovely tweets and emails. I have been walking around on a cloud of happiness ever since. And some of our listeners left really interesting comments on the story, too. People shared how metallic crowns and fillings affect the taste of food, 
how copper pots and scurvy are related, and how orange juice can help mask metallic flavors. Maybe something to do with the acids, I would have thought. Check out gastropod.com to read more. And Fast Company and Grist both reviewed us online. Nathaniel Johnson at Grist wrote, I'm drawn to food because of the way it bridges human culture and the natural environment. There's a new podcast that talks about food in just that way. I love that. It gets exactly at the heart of why we started this podcast in the first place. Thank you so much to all of you. But you know, I have to admit that my favorite feedback came from your dad. Mine too. I should say first that my dad is an audio expert with super sensitive ears. So I had him listen to an early version to check the levels and let me know if I missed anything in engineering. And then after he listened and gave me those comments, he wrote me this. Overall, I found it very interesting. I use a spoon to eat peas. The goal is to get the food to my mouth, which has the modern overbite. I would save a fork for something that would get speared by the tines. I would get laughed out of a British home. I love it. It is such a dad comment. (laughs) It totally is. But he's probably not missing much food-wise in the average British home, so not to worry. Dad, don't worry. He also sent me a link in case I wanted to buy some gold-plated spoons. Turns out they're not crazy expensive. You can actually get them at Target these days. I had no idea. Well, if you missed that episode and are now intrigued, you can find it on iTunes. In fact, you can sign up on iTunes so that you never miss an episode. We're also on Stitcher or whatever your favorite podcast app is. And if you like what you hear, please consider rating Gastropod on Stitcher or iTunes. The more love we get, the more chances we have to be discovered by future Gastropod fans. For our thanks this week, I want to give a shout out to crucial early listeners, Betsy O'Donovan and Beck Feldhouse-Adams. And don't forget Jeff Mano and Tim Buntell, who provide a captive and yet quite helpful audience as we work through our first drafts. I also want to thank Tamara Krinsky and Indre Viscontis. They supported and pushed me to write up the very earliest proposal for what would become Gastropod. And Adam Isaac, the producer of Inquiring Minds, that's the great science podcast where Indre is co-host. Adam gave me an entire brain dump on engineering pro tips and podcast production do's and don'ts. He answered questions I didn't even know I had. And of course, a huge thanks to all of you, our listeners. We're only one episode in, and I already think we really do have the best listeners of any podcast, just based on all the smart, funny, and lovely comments and tweets we've received. I agree. Till next time.